With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Deadline's new Hollywood live podcast panel and cocktails at TIFF 2019 is sponsored by Fig and Olive and Inkbox. You know, I talk about food all the time, guys. Fig and Olive is legit. They're serving up some of the most delicious, scrumptious food at our live podcast panels, and I can't thank them enough. Inkbox, dope tattoos. Dope temporary tattoos, I need to clarify. But they don't look like temporary tattoos. They look like the real thing. So look them up. I want to also give a special thanks to our partner, our partners, excuse me, Love Child Social House, where we held our lovely live podcast for Hustlers, for the obituary of Tunde Johnson and Just Mercy. All three great films, by the way. Um, I also want to thank Callie Love. I want to give love to Cali Love because they always take care of us, serving us great food, great vegan food, great healthy food. Poke bowls? Poke bowls! <laughs> Hashtag poke bowls. Um, delicious food, delicious smoothies. Thank you so much. Um, also, I want to thank Bullet Bourbon, Kettle One Botanical, and Tanqueray Number 10 for serving us libations during our lovely podcast. So let's move on with the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Deadline's New Hollywood Podcast. My name is Dino Ray Ramos, one of two co-hosts of the podcast. My other co-host and colleague, Amanda Nduka, is out in the city of Toronto doing some fabulous things while I am here recording. I'm just joking. I'm about to do some fabulous things, too. Mainly, go out and eat. I've eaten so much poutine. There's good burritos here, guys. <laughs> good burritos. And also, there's this place called Bun Me Boys, which I love. That Every time I come here, I go to. But you know what? I'm not here to talk about burritos. Although I would love that. I'm here to talk about the film the Obituary of Tunde Johnson, which is one of three live podcasts we're recording here. We re- recorded this with um, the filmmakers, um, the, the director, writer, and the actor of the film, the director, Ali Leroy. Writer Stanley Kalu and actor Steven Silver. This film is so, you know, I, I'm really trying to find the words for it. It's, it's about a man. It's just, you know, you know, basic, you know, log line stuff. It's about a young black queer man and his journey. That's kind of what you could call it. Uh, but it's also more nuanced than that. It covers so much, um, uh, so many timely topics, you know, they talk about being an immigrant family, families from Nigeria, 
They talk about violence, police brutality against black men in the black community. It, it's, you know, it covers, you know, uh, uh, interracial relationships. And, and it's a, I don't want to say it's a coming out story, but that is a component of it because, you know, the coming out narrative is, has evolved over the years as we've slowly progressed with the LGBTQ community. But it is a gorgeous film. It's a heartbreaking film. It's a heartwarming film. It, it, it's a touching film. And I urge everyone to go see it once it comes out. But you know what? We have this live conversation that we had with them. Um, we are doing some great things here. <laughs> if I could pat myself on the back with the new Hollywood podcast, I'm, I'm loving that we're spotlighting these things from, you know, we had Hustlers. Now we have this. It's a different kind of film about a marginalized community um, that just... You know, it is unlike anything I've seen before. So I'll just leave it at that. So without further ado, here is uh, Ali Leroy, Stanley Kalu, Stephen Silver from the obituary of Tunde Johnson here at TIFF. Thank you guys for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, I just want to start with Stanley. What was the catalyst and motivation for you to get this story written so it is shown to the world? Um, so I grew up in, uh, in Nigeria and then all over Africa. Um, and in those spaces, one, I see there's a lot of systematic violence against queer people um, that I've witnessed, that I've been around. Um, and the thing about growing up as a majority and coming to America is you are suddenly hit with the idea of the monolithic blackness. Mm -hmm. um, and it, uh, it was very depressing um, because I was not used to being devalued um, and dehumanized on a, on a daily basis. And when I came here, it was this uh, crazy thing because I'm, I'm a large black male <laughs> and I kept seeing people that look like me die every day. Um, on TV, so I, I was 19 and um, in the screenwriting program at, at USC and it was the year where you write your first feature and it just came out, it just came out of me because I, I, I was really trying to parse my, my experience in America with my experience within the African context and try and find some sort of center or answers for myself. Um, so I wrote it in, in one draft, and uh, then I won this competition, the mm -hmm. launch. Um, Congratulations. You won a you, lot of money. Thank you, thank you. That <laughs> was a penny. Uh, and uh, now we're here, and uh, we're so excited. And how did the collaboration between you and Ali start? Uh, Ali was one of the judges okay. um, of said competition, and once I won, uh, he was always a real advocate for the movie, and we sat down. And we just went back and forth, and it was like jazz, like we always say. We just <laughs> counterpoint and variation. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was, uh, Ali, what was kind of what drew you to the script? It was good. <laughs> that, that, that's you. a good enough answer. We <laughs> 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 care to elaborate now, there's no kidding. Yeah, you know, I mean, so, so we had, you know, we did this competition, and, and, you know, tons of screenplays were submitted. We got it down to a bunch of finalists, and, and in that final group of films, uh, there were movies that uh, I felt like, you know, this 
different stories, you know, a, a road trip story with a couple of white women. And so, mm. it's like, As you do. Well, I'm just like, you know, I had just seen Lady Bird. I'm like, you know, some, somebody's going to do this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and there were variations on those sorts of things, but this one was something that it's like, all right, it has science fiction elements to it. It has, you know, these, these social justice, you know, ideas embedded within it. And, and it was coming from a perspective that was not American. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just the ability to see uh, black people in a context that was larger than the society that this piece of work was going to live in uh, was just, like, really compelling to me. And so that was really the argument that I was making for it mm-hmm. is all these other things will stand a chance. You know, it's baseball. Tie goes to the runner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally it was that. It's like, mm. let's give this thing a shot. Mm. Um, and uh, Stanley, I just, this story really, really stood out to me and I really connected it because I'm also Nigerian. Hey, I grew up. Where, where <laughs> there you go. I grew up, Making I things grew up, happen here, guys. I grew, I grew up in Texas. I didn't grow, I, but I go back to Nigeria often. Um, and seeing a, an LGBTQ Nigerian adolescent story is extremely rare, if not non-existent. Non-existent. <laughs> um, and, you know, just, I, I found it really, I don't, and I don't want to give too much away, but I just found it really interesting the way you sort of positioned his parents in this. Can, yeah. you, can you sort of, yeah. without giving too much away, because right. I know people, can you sort of unpack that for us? Um, it's interesting because... Um, by nature, I'm rather subversive, mm-hmm. and I understood that the. Yeah, I'm trying to like dance yeah, this yeah, one. Yeah. Um, I understood. <laughs> I understood that the nature of what a person would think Nigerian parents are, and okay. the experience that that has has been for a lot of kids. Yeah. I was very interested in showcasing an image, um, and using representation to heal wounds and mm-hmm. showcase that things can be different. Mm-hmm. Um, this ties back to the idea of. For me, uh, my mom is very re- religious. Mm-hmm. Um, at, both of my parents are, and she, you know, with that comes a certain uh, view on on sexuality. Mm-hmm. And seeing her just watch Ellen, just day by day, just consume this like happy mm-hmm. queer woman. Her her idea on that shifted, and she started to see a person. Mm-hmm. So much so that like you know, once all this stuff started happening, we had a lovely phone call. And she was asking me about like binaries and uh, mm. about like this and about that. And these are really? things that she would never have gotten oh, to. Wow. You know, so the power of imagery and the power of representation on like a granular level, right. you know, not just putting black people in rooms, I'm talking like really understanding black imagery right. um, will change lives. And right. I've seen it happen, you know, in, in my own life, which yeah. is awesome. Wow, yeah. that's powerful. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that yeah. was great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, Steven. Steven, you're next. <laughs> We've seen you on 13 Reasons Why on Netflix, yes. and um, now you're the star of Obituary. Both take on very heavy topics. Yes. Um, was this on purpose, taking on this role? And what were sort of the, was this, a co- was this a coincidence, or do you actively sort of seek out roles like this that tell very important, very pertinent stories? Well, uh, I'm still at the point in my career where I'm auditioning, um, so I'm not at the point where so I can... So what about this character, yeah. then? Yeah, so, uh, well, although I'm auditioning, I still uh, am cognizant that I have the say-so of what I participate in, um, and so I, I really wanted to go out for this role because not only uh, in terms of the character, like, it's 
the archetypes that we see in Hollywood, we never see this. Right. It's unseen and it's important to be seen because um, the suicide rates among uh, young people of color is skyrocketing all the time. Um, and uh, I felt like coming off of the show that I just came off of, um, I already had the ear of an audience that would be open to that. Right. And so for me to go and transition into this was super important because I felt like I, we could continue to help people. Right. You know, and even structurally, this movie is different because it's a time loop that stars a young person of color, a young queer person of color. And so it's, um, it's something that needs to be seen more often. Yeah. So uh, obviously there's going to be comparisons to Groundhog Day, which is a comedy. Um, but also, there are these kind of moments I, I felt like a heightened reality of Moonlight. I help, felt the social awareness of the hate you give. And, and then you also tie in being from an immigrant family. Both me and Amanda are from immigrant families. You tie in an interracial relationship. I don't know if that's a spoiler. Sorry if it is. Um, it, it's not, okay. Um, and then, you know, even mental health. You everyone, all three of you guys are juggling so much. I'm like, oh, how? And like, how did you kind of, like, as a director, writer, and an actor, how do you even attempt to balance all of that to give this fluid story that just kind of like flows like effortlessly? Well, I mean, you, you, you cite all of those things as if they exist in vacuums and they do mm -hmm. not, Yeah. right? On any given day, any single person is dealing with all of those things, mm -hmm. right? And so, the circumstances that we move through, you know, call to the front whatever skill set we need to get through this moment, mm -hmm. right? What am I navigating right now? Mm -hmm. Am I navigating being black? Am I navigating being a man? Mm -hmm. Am I navigating being a black man? Am I navigating being a queer man? Am I navigating being an American? Right? All of these things can happen at any given point in time. So it isn't it isn't complex to me to to deal with all of those things in terms of stories because it literally is what the entire film is about, and that is accepting someone as a whole. Mm. When you accept someone as a whole, then you don't dissect, and you, you know, the idea of intersectionality, that's what it is. You know, the acceptance of someone, the acceptance of a circumstance as a whole thing, and, and when you see it like that, you know, now all of a sudden you don't see it as these things that demand that you service one thing over the other. Mm. It is more in an idea of, how do these things work alongside one another? Oh. Uh, and then that, for me, is what kind of allows me to deal with, you know, with the storytelling. I don't have to deal with a queer aspect of the story at the expense of the uh, ethnic aspect of the story. I don't have to deal with the Americanized aspect of the story against, you know, an Africanized, you know, mm. uh, part of the story. All of these things. Uh, you know, exist together, you know, and, and, and we do as a society, we do. And, you know, that absence of, that absence of noise, you know, the absence of conflict, that is kind of when everything is working together smoothly and things are functionally at peace. Mm -hmm. You know, it's only when something feels as if it's not getting the attention that it needs that that unrest and that conflict rises up. And that's when someone, something is demanding or needs to be seen or addressed you know, in deference to everything else that's going on. So, I don't know if it's juggling. <laughs> I just think that it's a thing, you know. No, yeah. And, and actually off that, like the, my, my initial structure uh, of a time loop comes from the idea that 
life is not a video game, you know? Yeah. Um, progress is not a linear thing. Uh, so oftentimes within like the genre construct, it's like, oh, they learned this, and then they move here. And then, and, and in reality, like life with all these things that one is dealing with is a constant like morph of wins and losses, small wins and losses. And you find that you're changing just incrementally and shifting here, but you lost that, and you're moving here, and you lost that. And so when I was thinking about how, how am I going to make a time loop human and not a conceit, it, it, it really comes out of trying to, off Ali's point, weave these as one, this is one person's consciousness. You know, this is not, we're not dividing them. This is the obituary of Tinde Johnson. And Tinde Johnson is black, queer, immigrant, and all these things, all, you know, all wrapped into one. You know, he's a being. Yeah, and then, um for me, I think the thing that stood out the most in terms of that question is the uh, aspect that if you are in a disenfranchised or an oppressed group, you're often code switching throughout the day. Um, uh -huh. And any time that you are, and in Hollywood oftentimes you don't get to explore that with characters. Um, they kind of have one storyline that they're telling and they kind of operate in a lane within that, um, that story that is not how we operate in real life because throughout the day, you may code switch two or three times, you know? Somebody who's an immigrant, um, especially in a place like high school, because right now, it's very popular to um, be inclusive, but I think even 10 years ago, that was not the case. That's actually quite new, you know? Um, so immigrants had to code switch in school. They got bullied all the time. A lot of queer people, even for queer men, when they go to the barber shop, that's a big place that they code switch, you know, for people of color. As they move up the corporate ladder, they have to code switch. Um, and those are not things that we see on film. We don't see the code switching as often as we should. Um, Stanley, I found it really interesting that the two, the two guys, Tunde and his love interest, um, they both sort of came from these communities where uh, being gay is heavily scrutinized, right? Like, uh, Tunde is obviously from an immigrant family. Um, his partner is an athlete. Um, and I mean, obviously we're seeing it more so being accepted now, but was that done intentionally or what was the idea behind that? Um, it's interesting because, uh, like I said, this, this is really the first screenplay I, I ever wrote. Okay. Um, so I, I came from a place of like, okay, what do I get? Like, what do I fully understand? Um, so I was like looking at archetypes, right? And I was like, if I can take archetypes that like I know, I've been in high school, I get it, jock, emo, popular girl, and I'm gonna destroy them, and I'm gonna build them back up as human beings. Um, so when I was looking at the tensions of like each character, I was like, all right, this jock comes from a privileged white family in which he would have to be pressured to have the white picket fence, to have the wife that's blonde and have the dog. And like, so when I was positioning his character, I was like, how do I make this work in tandem to Tunde? And then I see Tunde, immigrant, um, deeply sad and, and very sensitive and like, where is their attraction? Um, and, and even off that, it's, there's this idea for a new, new black people, uh, you know, as you're growing up, is if you're closer to whiteness, maybe things will work out for you. And that is a thing that I am, I was adamant about like attacking um, throughout the film because being black and being a person of color is a beautiful thing and, and we have to find that, you know what I mean? And uh, that's often not addressed. So I can't, I was kind of a sporadic way to answer your question, but I hope I, I that got it. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, th this, um, 
the movie is very much a different kind of coming out story. And in Hollywood, we have seen so many of the same coming out stories. Do you think that the coming out story is, I don't want to say needed still, but how, has you, have, how, how have you seen this, the coming out story evolve with, um, I guess this is for all of you, but about like with how society handles coming out and how things are changing with inclusivity? I mean, for me, dealing with this material, you know, it's very complex because without necessarily giving away too much of the film, you know, it, it deals with the idea of coming out on several levels. Uh, what are the expectations or beliefs of the person who is tasked with coming out? And what are the perceptions and beliefs of the people who need to be come out to? Right, and so in a different way we address both of these sets of ideas because it really is complex. Right, you can come out all you want to, but what's going to happen when you get out there? Mm-hmm. Right, and the reverse of it is true as well. There are some people are going, uh, um, you know, that that being gay is not, you know, a, a big deal, or you know, identifying otherwise is not a big deal. It's like, yeah, but you never had to go into the room and announce that you were not what everyone else was and see what happens. Right. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen when I get in there, right. and that is a daunting and oppressive fear, right. and it is that way for a reason. So to be able to try to address what that is from, from both sides of the equation and not in a dogmatic way, you know, is, it's, it's a high wire act. And, and this film is not, it is totally, from my perspective, it's without dogma at all. Mm. We're not telling anyone what to think. We're not telling no. them what to believe. We're not telling them what they should understand. We are presenting a piece of work with these varied and complex experiences. And I ultimately believe that whoever sees the work, whatever expression or whatever reaction they have to it, speaks more to what they're holding within themselves about what they're viewing than anything we intended for them to take away from it. Um, so, Ali, we've, we, we've seen your stuff mostly in the comedy space, uh, most notably co-creative Everybody Hates Chris. Um, what were some of... Uh, what were some... Yeah, give that some snaps. What was it like for you working on a film that's it's such a heavy, dramatic um, uh, narrative, and were there any surprising sort of parallels you've seen between the two, the two genres? Well, it is the least funny thing I've ever done. <laughs> 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 well, I mean... You know, I, I had somebody uh, uh, bring that this idea up to me. It's like, wow, you know, uh, this is really kind of heavy. This is really... It's not different from Everybody Hates Chris in the sense that that's a show that deals greatly and moves through the space of humanizing this family, right? We do regular things. We pay bills, we eat dinner with each other, we go out, we get mad, somebody stays up late, a kid got sick, there's a bully in the neighborhood. It's just like, I I don't like the idea that slice of life activities, daily mundane things, are the domain of white people. Right? When we tell a black story, they needed to be about some black shit. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know you got a car, but what if a black person got the car? <laughs> yeah. That's and we don't, we don't get to just be and, you know, just have a story about our experience. You know, the, the, the blackness is innate, right? 
yeah, you see it, we see it, we're experiencing it. You know, and there is something different that happens when, you know, when a black person moves through the space versus a white person. But the leap that people of color have been tasked with is watching volumes, decades of material, you know, fantasy, fiction, drama, comedy, westerns, space movies, otherwise, and we have to see ourselves in the experience of the white faces presented to us and just try and figure out where we fit in there. But the whole idea that if we present ourselves in the same way, that white people can't look at that and go, well, I see there's a black person on the screen, but I understand the experience of being afraid to reveal a heavy secret to someone. And so everybody hates Chris or you know, any other thing I've worked on and, and this, it all moves through that space. What your human experience is, what it feels like to hurt, what it feels like to love, what it feels like to laugh, you know, what it feels like to be angry, you know, all of these things. It's not different. It's just the other stuff has jokes in it. And I would dare say it's easier to not be funny than it is to be funny. <laughs> that was such yeah. a good answer. Like, Sam, for real. <laughs> yeah. Sam, I want to get your opinion on this. Do you feel like um, the, the way Africans and Nigeria, the diaspora and people in Africa, do you, do you see the way that they view um, L the LGBTQ, the queer community, do you see that changing? Absolutely. Okay. Um, because the concept of that is white. The concept of, um, the concept of uh, hating queer people comes from colonialism and comes from the introduction of religions that are not our own. In many ancient cultures, as you know, queerness was, was everywhere, you know, like the tribes were fine. So what it is, is like, I think as we move past the colonial hold, which is still present, um, but we're working on it, you know, uh, once we move past that and regain our own full autonomy, those things will be irrelevant. And like what I am trying to do in movies like Rafiki, are trying to do. We actually met the director in right. Kenya. We hung out in Kenya in December. It was great. Um, it was awesome. Oh, nice. Um, but there's there's a real movement all over the place that is pushing back against this. Um, the Kenyan government had, for the first time ever, the Supreme Court had to like really take a look at this law, and yeah, it failed. But the fact that that conversation is happening in Africa is a revo is revolutionary. You know, so it's coming. It's coming. All these things are coming as we lift ourselves, you know? There's hope for us, yeah. There's hope for us, man. There's definitely hope. Yeah, and um, just to wrap things up, you know, you guys kind of answered this question in pieces, but what do you, each of you, want people to take away from this film? Well, we'll start with you first. Okay. Uh, for me, I want people to take away um, the idea that if you're a part of a disenfranchised group, uh, you may be being attacked on the outside, um, but that doesn't mean you have to attack yourself on the inside and believe what the attackers are presenting to you. Um, and also, it's bigger than you, you know? For you to do that, for you to start with self-love in order to help everyone else out of that oppression and out of that disenfranchisement, um, self-love is, is where we start and then, I mean, then it will radiate from there. Now, I don't want to act like if you have self-love, then it will eliminate you being you know, persecuted. But um, it will eliminate you from doing it to yourself as well. 
Um, for me, it's if you're a person of color or a marginalized person, your shared existence is an act of revolution, and you have to understand that. Um, I, I, that is like the most important thing. By you being you and your whole self, you are a revolutionary. And um, hold that in you, because like Stephen was saying, there's a lot of attacks, but if you know that, that you being here, that you sitting there, that you sitting there, that us right here, this is an act of revolution. Um, and yeah, that's, that's my goal for the movie. I mean, for me, it, it is, uh, I mean, the film, the work is, is sort of an act of solidarity, you know? Um, you know, if I'm identifying as a cis, binary, heterosexual, black male, you know, I, I think I got all of it. <laughs> you know, um, I actually had a conversation with uh, India Moore uh, recently, and one of the things that they said about protection is that in as much as I may even be, you know, uh, disenfranchised as a black man in America, I still have a certain sort of power, right? So if I've got the, the power to present work and create a film or whatever it is, what I stand beside and what I choose to support and what I choose to protect with, with my power is a statement, right? So, you know, when you have the ability to do that, you know, the greatest statement that you make is that I'm looking out for somebody that is not really in the position to do what I can do. And ideally, in return, I would hope that someone who's in a position to do the same thing for me would do that as well. So even to look at this film, support the work, and walk away with some kind of understanding is a way of emboldening and empowering A, yourself, and then B, those less fortunate than yourself. Yes, yes. Thank you guys, thank you guys so, so much. much. Thank you. You know, um, thank you guys for doing this. Give another round of applause for Ali, Stanley, Steven. Support this film, you guys. It's important. Go watch the film. It's, it's still playing September 8th at the Tip Light Box and September 10th and 14th at Scotiabank. Thank, thank you guys, you guys so for being much. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.